Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, we are joined by Peter Dillon. Peter is an Irish stunt coordinator, stunt performer and actor. After spending several years working as a secondary school teacher in Ireland, Peter took a career break in 1998 to travel the world. During this trip, he trekked the Himalayas, teach scuba diving in the South China Sea and forwarded his study of martial arts in Malaysia and China. Arriving in New Zealand, it wasn't long before he made the transition into stunt acting in 2001 on the famous trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. He has since worked on a lot of projects and its credits include The Chronicles of Narnia, Underworld, Vikings, Penny Dreadful, James Cameron's Avatar and the recent box office hit Dungeons and Dragons on our Amongst Thieves. Let Christy take it, are proud to bring you Peter Dillon. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live. Who remember it? It began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest and fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. For within these rings was bound the strength and will to govern each race. But they were all of them deceived, for another ring was made. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into this ring he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all. Well, Peter, welcome to Let Christy Take a Podcast. Thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. How are you? Great to meet you both. Peter, you're originally a secondary school teacher and you took a career break in 1998. What prompted that? I did. Um, Well, one of the great things about teaching, I think, was, uh, well, three of the great things were June, July and August. um, uh, In that, you know, we have those summer holidays, obviously, in Ireland. Now, I've got to say, I did enjoy being a teacher, um, but... Those three months off every year allowed me to go out to Asia, um, specifically to Malaysia, which is where my martial arts master was based. Uh, he was originally from mainland China, but lived the, la- lived the last 45 odd years of his life, I think, in Malaysia. And so I used to kind of go out there every summer, do some training with him. And I subsequently became a scuba diving instructor out there so that I could pay for my travels. Um and then sort of back to Ireland at the end of uh, end of August to, to start teaching again. Um, and, you know, initially that was fine. It kind of, uh, it, it was what I used to call my alternative reality, you know, um, from sort of the black gown and the, the chalk, the chalkboard 
to uh, a tropical island in the South China Sea. And both were just as real and just as valid, you know. Um, and it allowed me to kind of expand my, sen my sense of what was real in my life, if you know what I mean, uh, rather than just overly focusing on one small place uh, and in one small area. Um, but I tell you what it was, in actual fact, was I'd always wanted to go to the Himalayas for some reason. Um, I don't really know why. I just always knew that I was going to sit on a Himalaya, you know. Um, and the best time of the year to do that really is kind of October, November, uh, when we don't really have holidays here. And so I decided I'd take a, a one-year career break based around that trip. Um, and so I sorted that out for 1998, uh, would have been September of 98, I guess. Um, and that was my thinking. I was going to take one year off. I would go to the Himalayas. Uh, I'd start the trip as usual in Malaysia, uh, do some martial arts training, some scuba diving, uh, and then work my way around the world. Um, so I had a around the world ticket to bring me back to Ireland at the end of that year. And at the start of it, you know, you think a year, it's so much time. I'll get everything done. <laughs> and all you, all you realize is that there's so much more that you want to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so towards the end of that year, I found myself in New Zealand, um, and the, this would have been 1999 now, um, and all I knew I, I wasn't ready to come back. So I applied for an extension for another year, uh, because you can apply for up to five years in a row. I think it was, um, with the career break. And so that was it. I, I kind of, uh, I managed to score a work permit for New Zealand because I was a school teacher. Um, but I never consciously migrated there. I, I just found myself not leaving. Yeah. Um, and Peter, it was in New Zealand that you actually start pursuing the career as a, a stuntman. How did this happen? Well, again, martial martial arts was the key to a lot of these things. Um, and so uh, I had met a martial arts master down there called Master Chan. Uh, fantastic guy, lovely guy. Um, and his brother and myself were the same age. And uh, we got on great, used to train together all the time. He lived up in Wellington at the time. I lived in Christchurch when I first met him. But I subsequently moved up to Wellington. And it was through the two of us training together one Saturday morning with some of his students um, that I met a bunch of guys. And we all went for lunch afterwards and just introducing ourselves. And, hey, how's it going? What do you do? And one of the guys uh, worked uh in the film industry, he said, and I said, oh, that's interesting. What do you do? And he said, oh, I work in the in stunts. I said, oh, wow. How, how did you get into that? And it was honestly, it was just out of interest. Uh, it was not something I'd ever thought of doing or thought of pursuing. And he said, well, uh, we've actually got some work coming up. Do you, do you want a job on the pickups for Lord of the Rings? And I said, yeah, OK. Uh, and <laughs> I really, I just said yes, because I thought it would be another good story for my travels. Um, having no idea really what I was saying yes to. But once I got on set, I realized, A, that I knew nothing. Um, and so it was eyes open, ears open, mouth shut. Uh, and then learned from the people around me who were kind enough to, to kind of uh, teach me as I went sort of thing. So I had prerequisite skills to get in there. Obviously, I was a martial arts instructor, a scuba instructor, a martial arts coach, a horse rider. So I had a, a kind of a strange background, I suppose, as a school teacher from that point of view. So they were the skill set that allowed me kind of segue into the industry. But then it essentially works a, a bit like a um, uh, like an apprenticeship, I suppose, where you kind of learn the job on the job. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how that happened. So honestly, it wasn't something I was pursuing. And I know there's a lot of stunt guys who hate me for that story because they work so hard to get in. And um, yeah. That's Peter, do you, do you remember the first stunt you've ever done? Oh, good question. Um, I, oh God, no, I... Uh, I remember the first high fall I was asked to do. 
And it was on my first job, but I can't remember if it was the first stunt exactly or first. And the reason I remember it was I always kind of joke that there's always the first lie where your boss says to you, have you done this before? And you go, mm-hmm. yeah, um, knowing obviously that you haven't, but also confident that you can do it because of whatever you've done in the past or whatever your skill sets are. So there's no point lying so you can do something and then screw it up because <laughs> that will be the end of anyone else offering you a job. Um, but I do specifically remember that. And it was basically, if you remember the giant elephants, uh, elephant type things, olifants, I think they were called um, in in Lord of the Rings. Um, and they had these things called Mumical on the back of them, which were like essentially like traveling fortresses with guys in the back shooting arrows and stuff. Uh, and I was just taking a fall off the top of that. Um, and so that was would have been my first class, I suppose, as a high fall. Um, and I I remember that specifically because I remember that first lie of going, yep, yeah, I've done that before. <laughs> and uh, as you mentioned, the stuntmen don't like you talking about because you almost, you know, you just got it by luck, I suppose. But with most professions, as you say, you know, you have to start at the bottom and work your way to the top. But you were here on your first gig working on probably one of cinema's biggest trilogies. Were you aware of the impact those films were going to have on popular culture? Absolutely not. <laughs> Um, absolutely no sense of that at all. Uh, and again, you know, um, just to backtrack slightly. Yeah. You know, someone might help you get your, somebody said this to me, someone might help you get your foot in the door, but it's up to you to get through the door and then stay through the door. That's a tricky thing, you know? Um, so, you know, nepotism will only get you so far, I suppose. Um, you've got to be able to back yourself, be able to do what you say you can do and be reliable. Uh, at the end of the day, that's the core, um, faculties of a stunt guy or stunt woman, um, don't bullshit, be able to do what you say you can do and be able to do it well and be reliable. And that involves turning up on time, you know, don't watch other people working, you know, all that sort of jazz. But anyway, back to, back to the second part of the question. Um, no, I again, you know, I, the only thing that I really knew that had been made in New Zealand at the, at the time was things like Xena, Warrior Princess. And uh, you know, what, what was the thing with Michael J. Fox, the kind of the horror thing that... Um, the Frighteners. Frighteners. Same director. It was Michael, yeah, yeah, The Frighteners. That was it, yeah. Um, and so I didn't know much about what was being made there and kind of assumed it might be sort of the same. Um, and it wasn't until, and yeah, you've got a sense on set, I suppose that, yeah, this seems pretty cool, but you know, the sets are reasonably limited, I suppose, in terms of what you end up seeing. So it wasn't until I saw it till I saw it in the cinema, um, that I kind of realized, Holy God, you know, this is incredible. This is amazing. You know, and Peter, when you're watching the cinema, can you spot yourself? Say, there I am. Oh, that's me there. I can <laughs> yeah, many, many times. Yeah. Great. Um, I did a lot of what they call motion capture for both the first and the second films. Um, so motion capture is, you've probably seen it in behind the scenes stuff, you know, where uh, the performer or the actor is dressed up in a kind of a tight fitting onesie, basically. Uh, yeah. And then they have dots all over them. And those dots either emit light or reflect light. Um, or you can have dots on your face as well for the, the uh, movements of the face. And then you've got Generally, you've got 360 degrees of cameras around you in what's called a volume. Um, and whatever performance you do is captured by those cameras and imported into the computer. And then the computer can overlay any surface on you uh, that it wants. So Andy Circus becomes Gollum, uh, or in my case, um, I became an orc or an Urukai. So um, in the first film, in the prologue, actually, you see a line of elves firing arrows at a line of orcs on a cliff edge and all the orcs that get hit and fall off. They're all me. What <laughs> actually might've been my first stunt actually. Um, so, yeah. 
You, know, you worked on all three movies, Peter, and not to coin a phrase, but you find yourself falling into this profession. When, oh, did, you decide, <laughs> when did you decide that the, the teaching break was more of a break and you were going to pursue stunt work full time? Yeah, uh, good question as well. So at, at the time, so it was the pickups that I worked on. So I don't know if you know, pickups are is a block of time allocated to the end of principal photography where anything that is missing or absent that they need to edit it together properly is then shot. Um, now, Peter Jackson tends to deliberately block out a substantial amount of time. So I think I worked full time for over five months on the pickups for Lord of the Rings number three, which would be longer than a lot of films would do for the entirety of their shoot. Uh, so um, the principal photography had already finished, I think, in 2001. And 2001 is when I started on it. Um, so. From 2001, 2002, 2003, uh, I just worked on those pickups for the for the subsequent films. Um, and in the meantime, I was working as a part-time school teacher in Wellington to kind of uh, make ends meet in between. Um, and then in 2004, I needed to make, oh no, two, yeah, 2002, sorry, I needed to make a decision about, um, I had no more extensions to make on the career break from the Irish school. Uh, now, I actually looked for an extension, having been away for five years already, and um, they very kindly, for some reason, gave me a week. <laughs> so I, five years and one week. And the reason I was looking for that extension was I hadn't heard back yet as to whether or not I was hired to work on the pickups for Rings too. you see. And so it was the last of the safety net. And so the one week passed, so five years and one week had passed, and I still hadn't heard anything back. And I just decided, screw it, I'm going to you know, make a leap of faith. and resign essentially from the teaching post back in Ireland and stay in New Zealand and the hope with fingers and everything else crossed that I would get the work and I did get the work. Do you believe there is a demi-monde? A half world between what we know and what we fear. A place in the shadows, rarely seen but deeply felt. Where some unfortunate souls are cursed to live always. That sounds like a warning. It's an invitation. And Peter, after the Lord of the Rings movie, you continued to work. You worked on TV shows, but you jumped straight back into big screen with like King Kong, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe. Which do you prefer, big screen or TV work? Yeah, again, good question. They're, you know, they're, they're quite different. Um, one of the things I like about TV work is you're shooting more faster um you're shooting more material uh, with a faster schedule if you know what i mean so you tend to get a lot more experience as an up-and-coming stunt guy or stunt person uh, that way so you know you might do your horse riding stuff and your fighting stuff and fire stuff and you know high falls all within the space of a few weeks even maybe depending on the nature of, of the job on a tv show and uh, because they're turning things around a lot faster um a whereas a movie uh, again depends on the type of movie as well uh tends to be a bit more slowly paced so you might find yourself doing a lot of training with the group when you're not on set or training with the actors teaching them the choreography for their fights or whatever um so i've got to say like one of my favorite jobs like i worked on vikings and that was pretty cool but one of my favorite jobs actually was uh penny dreadful um so i'm not sure if you're familiar, yeah. if you're familiar with we watched it, it all 
yeah, including, okay. including the new series that they scrapped after one series. After one ah, series. right, okay, yeah, yeah. So um, I think John Logan was the the writer, was it? Am I getting that right? But um, it was definitely his baby. Anyway, the the first three uh, seasons, the first show, um, and it was you know unlike something like Vikings, where there's a lot of hacking and slashing and big action with lots of people, lots of horses, lots of action. The the action in Penny Dreadful, as you will have seen, having watched it, is A, it's dark, and B, it's a, it's very intimate in a weird kind of way, a lot of it, you know? Um, and so it demanded more in terms of the performance, and I found that really interesting. It it definitely tr- crossed the line just from pure action into acting as well, which I definitely enjoy. Um, there was one scene, really unpleasant scene, where there's a bunch of gentlemen, as it were, uh, sitting around in a half circle in a dungeon, having paid money to watch somebody being abused, you know, um, that was how sick the setup was. Mm. I ended up being killed by being stabbed up under the jaw, up into the head, lifted up on that knife and then shot in the head by somebody else. So, um, it's a a very different kind of, um, very different kind of performance demand, I suppose, you know? And Peter, Uh, can I ask you, um, Lots of martial artists have their favorite punch, their favorite kick, their favorite kata, their favorite patron. As a stuntman, do you have a favorite stunt that you like to perform? Um, not really. I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm a very at home. I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, so I'm at home doing most of the stuff in that environment. Um, you know, I, I'm comfortable in water. I'm comfortable with heights. I'm comfortable with fire. Uh, I've done some car stuff, flipping cars, and so on. Um, I guess where i'd most be most at home I, and find it easiest to put stuff together reasonably quickly would be fighting stuff whether it's empty-handed or with weapons or swords or that kind of thing it's just i could do that in my sleep with my eyes closed at this point you know mm. um so i enjoy but i enjoy all of it I, I i enjoy the intensity of what's required um and you know a lot of people think you get used to certain kinds of stunts and they become easy but it's when you decide something is easy that you're going to get bust up because you kind of take it for granted and you you lose the focus um they, there's a thing that we refer to as the curse of the last week or the curse of the last day uh which is where you've been working hard for maybe five months or something like that um and it's always the last day or maybe the last week where people begin to lose focus the tiredness becomes comes to the surface and maybe that's when you're going to get injured if, if it's going to happen but um, to, my next question have you ever had a stunt that's gone wrong um thank god no not really uh i mean i've been hurt um and I, I carry a few minor injuries in my in my body at the moment, just aches and pains, I suppose. Um, but not nothing too bad now. Um, I, but I've been there when other people have been badly hurt. Um, so teeth smashed out, broken neck, broken back, you know, this kind of stuff. Have you uh, seen sets evolve, Peter, to a much more safer environment from when you started with the, with the, with the safety of the performers in mind? I've, oh, yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, I was 35 when I started doing stunts, which is old, um, to start doing stunts. The main advantage of that was I kind of knew what I was happy to say yes to, but equally what I was preferred to stand up and say, no, okay. uh, not like that. Let's do it this way or let's look at that or whatever, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, th- there are rules and regulations governing how stuff should be done. And, you know, the way the insurance covers film productions in different jurisdictions will essentially you know, uh, ensure supposedly that, that people do things the right way. Um, so really what it comes down to is the communication between the coordinator and the director. Um, 
So if if you've rehearsed something, you know, for days or weeks, and on the day the director decides he wants to see it in a different way, that's fine. But you then need to go back and make sure that what you're doing is safe in that new way, as opposed to just saying yes and trying to haphazardly throw it together on the, in the moment, if it's something reasonably complex. So it's not about saying, no, we can't do that. It's about saying, yeah, absolutely, we can do that. But this is what it's going to require. Um, and if you have a stunt coordinator who perhaps doesn't have the experience or whatever is required to say, kind of, we need to look at it this way and just says yes, then sometimes that can lead to um, to, to kind of accidents happening, you know? Yeah. Uh, Peter, you mentioned the word stunt coordinator, and we went through your IMD page, which is quite extensive. And in, in, in some of your credits, you're credited as stunt coordinator or stunt performer. What's mm. the difference? Uh, well, the coordinator is essentially the head of the department, um, and it's their job to manage the overview and the day-to-day -day requirements of the stunt requirements of that particular show. So, you know, the stunt coordinator will put together the stunt team. Uh, so it's management and logistics uh, on the, in, initially in the early stages. They'll also go out on recce's uh, where you go out and look at the various uh, environments where you're going to film and see how it's going to be affected by stunts and see what requirements you might need on that particular day. All the departments would go on those recce's. Um, and then on the day, you know, the, the coordinator will probably be responsible, certainly in an overview view way for whatever action is happening on that day and how it's been put together. Um, now, you might have a specialist fight coordinator who's working on uh, working on there as well, looking after the fight stuff. You probably have, you know, a, a rigging team or at least a chief rigger looking after the rigging and how that works. So essentially, the, the coordinator is the head of the department and the person who puts it all together in the first place. Whereas the stunt performer is the person who rocks up in front of camera and does the performance. That's the essential difference there, which I much prefer. You are the most fearless warrior I have ever seen. But you will learn to be loyal without the loyalty between us. We are no better than the beasts at our door. We are the immortal damned, vampire, and lichen. One born into privilege. Sonia, you risk too much for a father to ignore. I am quite capable of looking after myself. The other bred for slavery. Lucian, you are a credit to your race. But all that is about to change. Sonia, if I were to leave, would you come with me? My father would hunt you down. You have stung me with your betrayal. I've lived by their rules my entire life. I've protected them. Envied them. And for what? To be treated like an animal. We are not animals! Is this what you want? We can be slaves, or we can be... Lightons! Peter, my daughter Hannah would kill me if I didn't ask you about Underworld, The Rise of the oh, Lycans. Yeah. It's one of her favorite yeah. movies. She's a big Michael Sheen fan. And especially okay. in that movie with Michael Sheen with his top off. Um, do you have any good stories from that set? Um, yeah, well, uh, it was that was that was quite a fun job. And funnily enough, there's a I, there's a close-up of me shooting a werewolf in the ass <laughs> with a with a uh, with a crossbow. Um when all the, the werewolves are trying to break out of the uh the vampires kind of castle or something i can't remember which werewolf it is maybe the main guy is climbing out over a wall 
and then you just get a close up on me aiming and shooting at me, essentially in the ass. Um, so uh, I mean, that was that was a that was a fun kind of a, um, a a thing to do. And I remember there was one scene with me and this other guy standing as kind of two Viking, uh, not Viking, what do you call it? vampire guards in front of um, Bill Nye's character, um, and he was an amazing guy, really interesting to chat to, very very funny, but very serious and very committed. And we're standing there just, and you go into your own place as you get ready, as everything around you is put into position and you're getting ready and you know the fight's coming and, you know, the adrenaline is there, but you're keeping it in place. And all of a sudden, without any warning, he just goes, <laughs> behind the two of us. And Christ almighty, you know. And I don't know whether he was just kind of loosening himself out or getting ready to kind of relax or he had his little kind of process. But it certainly kind of caught the two of us by surprise. He needed to go shot in the arse or a crossbow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you're trying not to laugh for the next few seconds. Uh, and then you sort of rein it back in and you sort of go on from there. But uh, yeah. There As we go. mentioned, you go, it, she'd, be, she'd be chuffed. It is our, it's our, one of our favorites. As I mentioned, you, you, you do have an extensive resume on IMDb and it would be completely remiss of us to mention the most successful movie in cinema history, Avatar. Uh-huh. How did you get the gig on Avatar? Um, again, that was just, I got the call up to be part of that team um, uh, that were, so essentially a lot of the live action stuff for the first Avatar movie was done in New Zealand. Um, a lot of the computer stuff uh, and the motion capture was done back in the States. Um, and so, yeah, I, I got the call to be part of that team, which was great. Um, and we did all the kind of prep and rehearsals with the actors and ourselves for the zero G stuff and all that kind of thing. But then what was quite cool for me was, um, James Cameron pulled five of the stunt guys aside, um, when we were rehearsing one day and made us all audition on the spot, um, for, uh, for the role of the shuttle crew chief. Uh, and I got it. So, um, I actually have a, an acting credit on, on avatar as the shuttle crew chief. Um, so that was, a, that was an, that was a really cool show to work on. Um, not because of the way it turned out, because again, you've no real sense of how it's going to look, given that so much of it is blue screen and whatever. But it was guns and spaceships, which made a lovely change from horses and swords, you know. Brilliant. And uh, Peter, how is that process of scrutin- shooting blue screen versus actual being on set? How difficult is that? And how did you work between the two? Yeah, well, in this case, it was pretty good because the, uh, like, if we were inside in the shuttlecraft, for example, so I was the shuttle crew chief and I was essentially responsible for organizing the bombing of the tree of souls for my karma. Uh, And so the inside of the shuttle was an, like an absolutely incredible set. Everything was in there. Every button turned, every knob twisted, every lever moved. Um, There were running tracks built into the entire surface of the floor. So the huge pallets of explosives could be, you know, moved down the track. You know, it was incredibly detailed, amazing. And of course you're all there in your space gear and your guns and all the rest of it. Uh, and we had two guys with, I think, fifty cals, fifty caliber machine guns mounted on the, on the, uh, the, the, the draw, the, the, um, the back door essentially of the shuttlecraft, uh, and everything past that then was blue screen. So everything up to that point was live, and so you know you've got guns going off all over the place, and it feels very intense and very present and very real. And the fact that you know real life ended at the end of the shuttlecraft didn't make any difference at the time. <laughs> you just got so wrapped up in it, you know. Who are these strangers? Different. Confused axes. Most was tall as giants. Uh, I have never in my life seen men fight as these Northmen fight. 
are they? We captured two of them who were guarding their boat. We couldn't understand anything they said at all, except one word. Ragnar. We see you come back to Ireland to perform. You're in the Tudors and Love Hate. How good is it to work in Ireland compared to internationally? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Look, the standard in this country of everybody who's working uh, in the industry, um, from in front of to behind the camera, it's just, uh, it really is fantastic. And that's why a lot of the crews from abroad love coming over here because, you know, they know they're getting top-notch product um, and, you know, everybody's really good at what they do. And, you know, much better than their, they may be, uh, that, you know, they might have a reputation for abroad. People just don't really know. Um, and so quite often, if there's a big name project coming in here, they'll bring in uh, outside teams to kind of do the job, which absolutely is not required and shouldn't be happening. Now, it's happening less and less. And Irish crews are are filling filling out most of the job places in these jobs, which is great. So, you know, Vikings and Valhalla and, um, you know, things like Foundation and, and all of this kind of stuff have uh, had, you know, Irish crews on them. Um, all of whom are getting great names. So I've loved working on everything that I've done here. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, one of my favorite jobs ever, ever was Penny Dreadful. Um, and that was all shot here, seasons one, two, and three anyway. Um, Vikings was great. Valhalla was good, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, I, you know, essentially it's like a traveling circus. Um, and, you know, everywhere you go, once you're at work, it all feels very familiar and very much the same. Um, right down to meeting, hey, we, we work together in such and such a country or on such and such, such a job, which I find terribly confusing. I find it hard to remember people's names at the best of times, you know, um, and then people crop up all over the world. So it is like a traveling circus. Um, and there's a there's a lovely familiar sameness wherever you are, as long as the job is being done well. And it does get done well in Ireland. And Peter, you did travel back to New Zealand to work in the Hobbit movies. Did you know when you signed on it was going to be three movies? Uh, no, um, and I was still actually living in New Zealand uh, at the time. Now, I had come back to Ireland in 2010 for a break. I can't really remember when exactly or why, just in the middle of 2010. And I ended up getting work on some Peter Pan movie. Um, I remember filming over in Genoa and that sort of stuff. So I ended up staying in Ireland for the second half of 2010 through to Christmas and then went back in January of 2011 to start working on The Hobbit. Um, so although I'd been back for a good block of time in Ireland in 2010, I was still living in New Zealand. Uh, I had my apartment there and all that sort of stuff. Um, and no, <laughs> nobody knew it was going to be three movies. We thought it was going to be two movies. Um, and we shot it as two movies. Um, but there was an enormous amount of stuff shot. And then I think it was at Comic-Con um, that Peter Jackson announced that they shot enough stuff to make three movies. So they were going to make three movies. Um so, yeah, we went back and did another six months, I think, in the last half of 2013 um, to kind of flesh that out and, and sort of finish it off. Peter, on, on the Hobbit movies, you were the primary stunt double for uh, Balan. I'm saying Balan, Balan, Balan uh, yeah. played by the legendary actor Ken Stott. Um, yeah. Did you get to interact much with Ken and the principal cast? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like we all trained together. We trained together for three months prior to shooting. And, you know, I've got to say, we were wondering, why the hell are we all training so hard for The Hobbit? Like, and then we got the the costumes. So, like, my costume at its heaviest was 30 kilos. <laughs> um, so, and then you're supposed to jump around like a gazelle and fight, you know, orcs and stuff in this thing. And, you know, it's not just 30 kilos, but you're inside a fat suit. You're inside, you know, encased in prosthetics. 
I was wearing army boots inside giant boots to give you the kind of the dwarf perspective. And, you know, moving was not easy, you know. Um, so anyway, we spent a lot of time training together with the actors, both uh, as a group um, and then individually with our own own actor. But I got on great with Ken. He was a lovely guy and, um, you know, went around to his place a few times for dinner and stuff. Um, in fact, one nice story, um, like I've never been that interested or affected by meeting famous people. I think it's just an Irish thing, to be quite honest. But in this particular case, um, Ken had invited me around to watch uh, the Scottish Cup final, which he was buffering um, to watch at like two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and his his wife was New York Italian and he was Scottish Italian from memory. And so it was there was always great food, great wine and great arguments and you know debates. So it was always great to go around. But anyway, so I get there about 11 or 1130 at night and we're you know having a glass of wine and something to eat. And the doorbell rings and Ken says, can you get the door? And I said, yeah, no worries. So I opened the door and it's Billy Connolly. <laughs> so, and wow. so Billy Connolly has just been a hero since I was yeah. a kid. You know? And so I'm kind of oh, Billy Connolly, you know, and so he comes in and Ken introduces me to him, to Billy as his stunt double. And he kind of looks at me, you know, and he goes, stunt double. I, I had a stunt double once. He was dead by lunchtime. <laughs> and like you, I laughed. And he kind of looked at me and goes, it's not funny. The man died. And <laughs> Apparently, apparently he'd had a headache or something and he'd taken medication which he was allergic to and he fucking died and so my first impression of billy Connolly is i'm laughing at a horrible story because it sounds funny because it's coming out of his mouth but um, i mean i'll take you back when you open that door and see billy Connolly. yeah you don't just say ah oh, come on in we we dumbfounded we had to take a few seconds for you to process this uh it probably did but you know the way a couple of seconds can seem like an eternity and you feel like you're just going or you know like there's a computer glitch and you're frozen um but uh you know i'm a bit cooler than that i suppose so (laughs) i just smiled and welcomed him in that's the irish in you peter yeah exactly you know um and i've got to say it was a fantastic evening because the two guys they've known each other for years uh ken stott was in the bay city rollers before they became the bay city rollers um and so he was a musician as well and he and billy had played all these dives and being stiffed by the same sleazy managers who wouldn't pay them mm. their fees and you, you know so listening to them and plus they're both you know they're both very intelligent guys and both quite political guys and working working class hero types so it was an absolutely fantastic evening and then i ended up giving billy Connolly a lift home oh, wow. <laughs> um, so yeah for me that was uh that was a great night it was a real high point my dear frodo You asked me once if I had told you everything there was to know about my adventures. While I can honestly say I have told you the truth, I may not have told you all of it. Bilbo Baggins, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure. I can't just go running off into the blue. I am a Baggins. Wait! Of Baggins. Bilbo, allow me to introduce Feely, Keely, Oindon. Darling, darling. Dory, Dory, Dory. And the leader of our company, Sorin Oakenshield. Just to go back to you, you were you were talking about the the, the weight of the suit and oh, yeah. you know the prosthetics and you know work boots inside big other you know kind of fake shoes. How physically demanding on your body? Over the course of the three years of filming or two and a half years of filming, how physically demanding or what did that take out of you? As I said, it, it explained why they'd had us all training for three months um, prior. 
Um, and when I say training, I mean serious physical circuit training and fitness training and strength training just to be able to manage that. And, uh, you know, it, it was bad enough when we were outdoors, but when you're indoors in the inside uh, and you've got all the lights on you and stuff, the heat was incredible. And there was no way to vent that heat because you got to remember you're in a side of fat suit. My head was encased in silicone with the prosthetics and so on. Um, and then, you know, one of the disadvantages from our point of view as stunties with the advent of uh, digital shooting is, you know, film, actual film was expensive and limited. Uh, and so when you ran out of film, you obviously, you know, you had to move on or stop or, you know, reload and all that kind of jazz. Now with, with digital, you just delete it and shoot again. Yeah. So they've they introduced the idea of what they call rolling resets. So you do the fight and then they go reset and you're back straight to the start and straight back into it again. And Christ, I mean, I think there was more than one occasion where somebody vomited, <laughs> um, you know, uh, and, you know, there were a couple of people may or may not have passed out and, and that sort of thing, you know. Um, so it was hugely demanding. Um, there was a scene, a scene, uh, it was down on the uh, the call sheet, a scene 88. Um, but it's the scene where all the dwarves are being chased through the, the wilds by the wargs. Um, and we called it scene 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, because it just went on for flipping days of being helicoptered into the most beautiful landscapes you can picture in New Zealand and then running <laughs> in these massive suits and massive boots over very rough ground full of rabbit holes and everything else. You know, uh, I ended up tearing my the, the quads of my right leg doing it. Um, and so it's pretty sore for a few days. But um, yeah, oh, look, it's all coming flooding back to me now, climbing the trees. <laughs> All that kind of stuff, wearing all that gear, um, yeah, yeah, it was it was a and, challenge. <laughs> and, and you weren't the only you weren't the only Dubliner in the cast because one of our local lads who originally originated from Clondalkin, Aidan Turner, was in the cast. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Aidan was great, you know, and um, played a blinder down there, and um, yeah, it was good to work with him, and uh, and of course Jimmy as well. Jimmy, um, that's oh good. God, see what I said about names. Jimmy Nesbitt, thanks very much. Yeah, uh, he was on board as well. Great. We all actually went out to see um, uh, Irish comedian. Probably too early for Tommy Tiernan, is it? Tommy Tiernan, yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was Tommy Tiernan. So we had tickets to Tommy Tiernan. And um, naturally, a few drinks were had before going in. Um, and all I remember is laughing my ass off, but I couldn't tell you a single joke told. I remember how he entered. He entered. It was a completely black stage, dark stage, no lights. And there's a bit of mur murmuring in the audience. And then this one little spotlight came on right in the middle. And Tommy walked out from side stage in through the dark. And he just leaned his head into the light and looked around like this <laughs> and said, it's great to be in a country as insignificant as Ireland. <laughs> it kind of went from there, you know. Um, but afterwards, uh, we all went back and, and had a few drinks with him. So I was kind of chatting with him and. It turned out in conversation that we had both held hands with the same girl for a while. Uh, not at the same time now. Yeah, that would be a good story. Yeah, yeah. So Ireland's a, small, Ireland, Ireland's a small country for sure, you know. That it is. Um, yeah, but that was a great night as well. That was a great session. Um, I just accused him of traveling the world, gathering up all the disparate Irish and getting them into his shows, which he agreed with, you know. Peter, Kieran asked you earlier on what your yeah. favorite type of stunt to do was. What is your least favorite type of stunt that i can answer instantly um i i mentioned earlier that i'm comfortable with heights and cars and fire and water what i'm really not uncomfortable uncom with is uh closed spaces so i'm uh, i'm properly claustrophobic 
uh, to the extent that I had an MRI scan once and it was the closest I ever went to becoming Incredible Hulk and just smashing out of it. Anyway, so I really do not like closed spaces. Uh, and I've done a couple of jobs where in one instance, for example, I had to be buried in a grave. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I really didn't like that at all. Um, in fact, it's funny, even saying it to you now, I can feel myself kind of sweating a bit. Um, and I've also had to have head casts made a number of times, uh, either, for example, for the prosthetics for, for The Hobbit, or um, I got beheaded on Into the Badlands. Um, I, I don't know if you know Into the Badlands. It's kind of a post-apocalyptic sort of Mad Maxian style world where there's not that much in the way of uh, technology left. So it's all fighting and swords. Um, and this guy... I'm kind of in a kneeling position at the end of the fight and he slices through with his blade and the camera goes onto my head and it looks like he's just nicked my neck. And then it turns onto my, me, my back and him, and he just kicks the head off my shoulders. Um, uh, and uh, there's a huge gout of blood kind of spurting up. Um, so to do that, they had made a perfect head cast of my own head. Uh, but in order to do that, you're sealed in in layers of plaster um, and just two little tiny holes left for your nose and Christ, uh, yeah, I've had it done a good few times, and I can hate. Excuse my language. I hate it every single time. Peter, what do you do in that situation? So obviously you have a like a claustrophobic. When you're being buried alive, what do you do to kind of say, "Well, I have to get through this"? How do you prepare? How do you cope as you as it's happening? Yeah, um, with the being buried thing, I yeah. to be honest, I took my phone in with me, <laughs> um, so I was able to look at the phone and kind of play games on the phone, and it kind of zoned me out into a bigger space, as as, as it were. Uh, until I had to turn the phone off, obviously, you know, and that's that's how I got through that one. Um, with the other, I, I have this, and I learned this when I was doing the that aforementioned uh, MRI scan, is I count to 10 uh, and repeatedly count to 10. Uh, I don't go past 10. I don't, don't count to 11. I count to 10 and keep counting to 10 um, and try to stay focused on that um, and try not to not to visualize, like when I'm getting the head cast on, not visualize what I look like from the outside, which is completely sealed into this damn thing. Yeah. Actually, I hate you for getting me to talk about this. This is horrible. <laughs> um, and when you stand yeah, up, Peter, so, and look in the mirror, do you go, oh, you get a kind of a shock at the first time? Um, What, with the head cast? What do you mean? Yeah, when you stand up after being cast, just for the first time when you're on set and you stand up and see what it looks like, you kind of... Oh, yeah, like uh, with the Hobbit thing, for example. Yeah. yeah I that In fact, you know, for the first couple of days um, when we all got, our, got into the prosthetics, we were trying to stay quiet to see how long it would take each other to figure out who we were. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, these weren't masks. These were fully connected fitting prosthetics. So they, they would express the same as your own face would express. Uh, and so in my case, the forehead and the nose and the cheeks and the jowls are all pretty thick. Um, but around the mouth and the eyes was extremely thin and delicate, you know? Um, uh, and so it took quite a long time to get it on properly. It took about four hours in the beginning between to get the prosthetics and the hair and the beard and everything. And they had that down to about two and a half hours. So again, from the claustroph point of view of someone who's a bit claustrophobic, yeah, every you know every day pretty much for two and a half years. <laughs> so that's it. Go on in the morning and you take it off in the evening and it's repeated every day, is it? Every day. And it's a different one every day. So each one gets chucked away because it gets destroyed yeah. uh, in the process of, of, of working in it and taking it off. Um, yeah. So that itself was an extremely expensive process because you had the 12 actors all in prosthetics and you had their 12 stunt doubles all in prosthetics. Um, and they all had to be painted up to the same level of, of, of perfection. Um, so I actually um, had a second contract um, to, in, the, in the last 
six months of working on The Hobbit, which was working as the picture double as well as the stunt double. Um, so the, a picture double is um, generally another actor who is hired to do um, acting performances that aren't close up with dialogue. Um, and um, yeah, Peter Jackson just liked the way I kind of did stuff and the way I moved. I spent a lot of time with Ken and watching because it wasn't about me performing Balan. It was about me performing Ken performing Balan. Yeah. Um, so I noticed that if you walked past somebody, you would often casually touch them on the shoulders. You walk past and this kind of thing, all that kind of attention to detail. So it, it came out in, in to the best of my ability in my performance as well. So I ended up having both roles, which was, which was nice. Um, it, it was nice because, uh, I found myself in a lot of scenes that I wouldn't normally be in as a stunt double working directly with the actors who were all brilliant and absolutely took me under their wing and, you know, gave me loads of tips and all the rest of it. So yeah. Peter. I had to ask you, did Mr. Jackson play a lot of the Beatles on set? Could you see that come in that documentary? Uh, no, uh, no, I didn't. I wasn't aware of his, uh, of his attachment to, uh, to the Beatles. I'll tell you what I did know is uh, my, my father was in the Second World War in Bomber Command and Lancasters. Um, and the Second World War would be a kind of a passion project of Pete's, um, especially in relation to flying and Lancasters. And he has been in the only two working Lancasters in the world. Um, one of which is in the UK and I think the others in Canada uh, and he's been in both of those and he did at one stage I'm pretty sure have a plan to maybe I shouldn't yeah I'm going to leave that one go actually. okay um, yeah. you're sure. going to talk about the documentary <laughs> all the young men but that's World War One. they should no, never no, grow up World War no. I, yeah. yeah 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 um, so I remember um, sharing you know about my dad's experience and his logbooks and, and that sort of stuff with, with PJ was interested in that kind of thing so yeah, I, I I always liked talking to him. He was a you know quite a quiet guy and nice to talk to, kind of away from the madding crowds. You know, yeah. yeah. It always Genius. amazed me that he went from kind of meet the Feebles yeah. to the Freutners yeah. to Lord of the Rings, and to, to to see that you know that journey was you know just brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's a consummate storyteller. He he kind of. And I tell you what, he always has this incredible overview that I could never manage or understand myself. Um, because something like Rings or whatever, or The Hobbit, you know, it's taking place over such a long period of time in terms of the shooting. Um, and obviously, it's not always shot chronologically in terms of sequence. And so you might find yourself months later going back to finish off a scene from another angle or something. Uh, and he always knew exactly where everything was and what was going on and what the, what the vibe was and what the emotion was and so on. So he had amazing kind of overview of his own storytelling. Um, and, and then a, a very immediate presence to that storytelling on the day, which meant that things often changed on the day, you know, um, and whether that was dialogue or action sequences or whatever. So, um, yeah, it, it was, it was very organic and very, you know, the whole thing constantly evolving and lovely to be part of that, I suppose, as well, you know. Here's the thing. We're a team of thieves. And when you do this, you're bound to make enemies. Sometimes those enemies come looking for revenge. Truth be told, we help the wrong person steal the wrong thing. We didn't mean to unleash the greatest evil the world has ever known. 
but we're gonna fix it. So how do we pull that off? Uh... Figure it out over a drink? Probably best. You need to give us a fighting chance. We're gonna need strength. You got this, right? I know you don't. We also need courage, magic, and you. To bring you right back to what got you involved in it, can I ask you, did you start martial arts in Dublin and what style were you doing? Yeah, um, and, and that actually brings me back to, to kind of why I'm down here now, yeah. I suppose. Um, so I, I, when I was still in school, I did Kempo Karate uh, down in Dunleary um, in the Workman's Club. Uh, and then when I started in university, I, I always knew I was looking for something, but I didn't know what I was looking for. Um, at one of those cases where you can't know what you're looking for until you find it, because you don't really know how to articulate it, or I didn't anyway. Um, and there was a Kung Fu, Kung, Kung Fu club in college in UCD, um, and I joined that, and it didn't really seem any different, you know. Um, but then I met a guy called Sung Yu Cheng, who was over here studying from Malaysia, and he was teaching a small, unofficial kind of Kung Fu group in UCD in the sports center that subsequently became the Shaolin Kung Fu Club. He eventually took me on as a student. Uh, and from him, I, I realized essentially he, he opened doors that I didn't know were there to be opened. So for him, it wasn't just a pastime or, you know, uh, a hobby. It was part of his tradition and his culture and his heritage. And he insisted on teaching it in that context. Uh, and so we began learning it in that context. Um, and, you know, that Chinese way of teaching is very different from the Western approach, which at the end of the day is often spoon fed orientated, whereas there's absolutely no spoon feeding in traditional Chinese martial arts. So um, from him, I learned how to learn. And there's no doubt about that. And uh, I went out to Malaysia then when I was 20, I think, for the first time to 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 see him out there and to see his school. And again, that was a huge eye opener. Um, and so, you know, that became probably the only continuous thread in my adult life was the practice of that martial art. Um, so I switched. So he went back to Malaysia after a couple of years. The group of us over here that were training uh, met with a guy called Han Kim Sen, Master Han Kim Sen, who's based, he's Singaporean Chinese based in London. So he then uh, became our direct teacher for a system called uh, Wu Tzu Chuan, or Five Ancestors Fist Shaolin. Uh, and his master was uh, Qi Tong, and it was him that I used to go and visit when I was going out to Malaysia. Um, so that was that's my connection, and that's the art that I still practice and still teach. And um, Peter, you teach it in West Cork now. You have the Little Forest Sanctuary. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So, like I said, I realized in 2016 that you know that adventure was done really, and I began to look for the way out. Um, and I I knew I wanted a place with space around it and somewhere on the edge of Ireland. So I looked at Donegal and Ackle and Galway and Clare and cut a long story short. Anyway, I found this beautiful place here in Skull uh, down in West Cork. And uh, I built a little training hall here uh, and yeah, started teaching. Um, so I'm teaching uh, Qigong um, and I'm teaching Kung Fu. Um, the Qigong is actually from the Kung Fu, um, but not everybody wants to learn the martial stuff. So I have two separate classes. Well, I've actually six classes a week going on now at the moment. Um, and I also have space for accommodation. There's a little guest cottage here and there's a couple of other cabins as well. So I can run, um, more extensive, more in-depth, more, uh, more long-term kind of, uh, training programs if people want to come down and stay. So yeah, it turns out that this West Cork is the next adventure. Uh, and I absolutely love it down here. Um, so it's like completing the circle. I'm back to the start. Yourself and Kieran uh, have a lot in common. Kieran's a secondary school teacher in in his real world. 
Very and good. Kieran's a six degree black belt. Shotokan yeah. Craddy. Excellent. Ah, yeah. Have my that own was... um have my own school and so yeah, yeah, I still train and so yeah. I so I'm very interested in the martial arts. So. You still keep your, your toe in the in the stunt world. I know you said you're kind of you just alluded to being sort of semi-retired, I, I assume. What's next for Peter Dillon? Yeah, so uh like I worked on uh, Dungeons and Dragons, um the big budget thing that comes out next year, uh, which was great fun. In fact, I get obliterated by a dragon in the uh, in the trailer. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, um, check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, I, I worked on The Last Duel with Ridley Scott. I worked on um, Dungeons and & Dragons, and I worked on Valhalla last year. This year um, is the first year since 2001 where I just said uh, no to all the film work. Um uh and i'm just focused on doing what i'm doing here uh and i've really enjoyed that now never say never um is always my motto there's no point doing that but um yeah i mean 20 years was a good run uh i worked on a lot of really good projects and got to do some pretty interesting stunts and have a nice little show reel to kind of uh, remind myself of what it all looked like um but i you know and that's was something that I was really interested in doing. Um, maybe something to do with Star Wars or something. Um, I think I might sort of leave it go, but I don't know. Never say never. Did, did I hear a whisper that you also teach lightsaber skills? <laughs> uh, well, so the story on that is um, there's a local language school that works here, kind of particularly during the summer months. And the woman who runs it's brilliant. She talking to saying yes to anything but anyway <laughs> when i first moved down here she kind of found out about my background and asked would i be interested in doing something for her language school you know for all these kids that come in from abroad and adults as well and so i said yeah i'd run a kind of a sword workshop so i have these kind of training swords which are essentially wooden katana shaped swords or japanese shaped swords that are covered in foam and i take people through all the basic drills and training that you would do with any actor um, so initially six attacks and six defenses, bringing that up to eight and then adding in a bind. And then from that simple choreography, you can make up what look like reasonably complex fights as everybody starts moving at a different point in that choreography. And if they get good at it, which they always do, I have these hand-built lightsabers that I have that are tough enough to duel with. Uh, and then I, as part of it, let two of them fight me at the same time and then they can kind of film it themselves and these things light up they have sound motion chip motion control chips in them so they've got all the sound effects all the lighting effects and uh there are no eyes in the world regardless of how old that do not light up yeah. at the sound of an igniting lightsaber <laughs> yeah so yeah i love it i love well, it peter we're almost at the end and we're, we're delighted to have you but before we let you go there's a question that we finish on and the yeah. question is this it's last orders in the bar, Peter. There's yep. the jukebox in the corner. You have a euro in your pocket. What's the last song Peter Dillon ever wants to hear? Uh, it's going to be Werewolves of London. Uh, and not because your daughter loves uh, Rise Warren, of the Light. Because Zeman. you shot one in the arse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Warren Zevon, Werewolves of London. Uh, well, released in January 18th, 1978. So the day before my birthday. Um, and I just think it's one of the coolest tracks ever. It is, it is. Um, well, Peter, that's the song that we're going to play this interview out on. So, for myself, Kieran, Mark, our editor, and the whole Let Christy Take a team, Peter Dillon, thanks very much. Absolute pleasure. Lovely to meet you all and uh, stay in touch. Well, I saw Lon Chaney walking with the Queen, doing the werewolves of London. I saw Lon Chaney, Jr. walking with the Queen, Ooh. doing 
when the werewolves of thunder I saw a werewolf drinking a pina colada at Trader Vic's And his hair 